Psalm 51. Hear now the words of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will treat transgressors, teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Those are the very words of God. Amen. 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 Uh, Derek Redmond is uh, an Olympic gold medalist. Uh, He's an Olympic gold medalist and uh, he's he's a uh, he's a sprinter. Uh, You probably remember him uh, from the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. Uh, Derek is in the Olympics. He's a sprinter. He's famous for his 400 meter. And so the, 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 the runners all took their mark. Uh, they're, they're taking their places, and Derek is lined up. He's the favorite in the race. So Derek takes his mark, and the gun bangs, and uh, you hear the pow, and all of a sudden they take off running. And Derek gets a great start. And about 150 meters into the race, he pulls uh, one of his muscles. His hamstring is, is severely sprained. And so he's in pain. He's, he's in agony. He hits the ground. This is the guy who's supposed to be the favorite to win this race. He hits the ground. And you see his face is in pain, and he's looking down in disappointment. you got to imagine this guy had worked for for years to get to this place where he could win another gold medal in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, all to have sprained uh, to to pull his his muscle and hit the track with nothing else, uh, everything else looking grim for him. He tried to hoist himself up. And you would see Derek if you would go to you could see it on YouTube or they may play it on ESPN. You can see him hopping on one leg. Get this, because he was determined to finish this race. He was determined. And the next thing you see is a man pushing his way through the stance of the crowd. He pushes his way through the stance, through the people in the stance, and he gets down to the track. He pushes his way through security and he gets to Derek and he puts his arm around him. Turns out it's his father. It's his father. So here Derek is hobbling on one leg, trying to finish the race the best he knew how. And his father puts his arm around him. He says these words, son, we will finish 
together. We'll finish together. See, what Derek's father was teaching him in that moment is, son, it's not about how you started, but it's much more about how you finish. So Derek would take off hobbling in pain and in agony on one leg. Why? Because he wanted to finish the race. He and his father, arm in arm, Derek in tears and in pain. And guess what? He finishes the race. And I think when we come to this passage this morning, when we come to Psalm 51, uh, there's a lot of things that we can learn about this passage. But one of the things I want you to understand is it's not about how you start, but it's how you finish the race. And I think David's life will be indicative to that, that reality. It's not about how he began. It's not about all the things that happened in the middle, but it's how he finishes. And Psalm 51 is just that. It's David's finish. And this morning I want to talk about manhood 101. But before we jump in, let's, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you just for this time that we can spend together. Thank you for this time, Father, that men can be together. Uh, Father, thank you that you have uniquely created us, that you have given us purpose, Father. Genesis 1.27 says we were created in your image. That means we have a destiny and a purpose, oh God. And I, I pray, Father, that we through this morning, Father, through your words this morning, Father, that we would better understand what that purpose is, oh God, as men. And we would better understand what manhood looks like and what manhood does not look like. So help us, oh God. And Father, would you allow me to decrease that you may increase in me, Father. Speak, oh God, to us, Lord, that we may hear a word of life from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it doesn't take a a brain surgeon, it doesn't take Einstein to realize Uh, That manhood is in trouble, right? Manhood in our day is in trouble. Uh, The feminist movement would tell us that manhood is in trouble, causing men to, to have a confused idea of their identity and personhood. Manhood is in trouble. Uh, men at an alarming higher rate are are in crime, committing crimes, going to prison, committing murders and committing robberies at an alarming higher rate than women are. Manhood is in trouble. And as we learned a few weeks ago, one of the things we we know and even from many of our own lives, as I've heard testimony after testimony, uh, the the habitual chronic pain of fatherlessness, manhood is in trouble. It does not take a genius for us to realize that there is a problem with our understanding of manhood. And I think David has some things to say about this through his own life. One of the things we can learn is from David's life. David has a story. And when we talk about manhood, we've got to discuss his story. He's got a story. See, Psalm 51 is the aftermath of David's story. If you don't know David's story, uh, here is a guy who had much wealth. He's a king. um, And here's here's David. He goes up to the top of his roof, just walking around. And he sees this beautiful woman. This woman is a dime. She's 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 bad. 
She's a dying piece. She's like an Eva Mendez. How, how do you know? The Bible doesn't say anything about Eva Mendez. Because, look, David could have had any woman he ever wanted. He was a king and he chose her. He saw her and he wanted her. This woman was fine. She was bad. And so David uh, sent his officials over to to grab a hold of Bathsheba was her name and to bring Bathsheba Bathsheba over to him. David slept with Bathsheba. Bathsheba got pregnant. Bathsheba sent a message to David and said, look, man, I'm pregnant. David, David's like that baby ain't mine. I don't know whose baby that is. We're going to have to go on the Maury show or something. Um, now, David didn't say that. I'm just joking. Uh, that's the Chris standard version. No, but um, so David uh, tries to devise this plan to cover his tracks. He comes up with this, what he thinks to be a mastermind plan. So David calls uh, Uriah the Hittite, who is Bathsheba's husband, out of a fierce war that's taking place. He calls him out of war in hopes that Uriah the Hittite would go home, enjoy the luxuries of being out of war, sleep with his wife, and things will be fine because he'll think that baby belongs to him. But Uriah is a faithful warrior. So when he comes home from war after being called home by his superior, you know what he does? He doesn't go home and sleep with his wife. He sleeps at the, the door on the porch of the king and he does not sleep with his wife. So David's plan is thwarted. And you know what David does after he slept with this man's wife? He says, you know what? You know how I'll fix this. I'm going to send Uriah the Hittite into the heat of battle. And what David is doing, he's essentially murdering Uriah the Hittite in cold blood. And so that's exactly what David does. So he sends Uriah the Hittite in the heat of the battle. Uriah is murdered. David then takes this uh, woman, Bathsheba, as his own wife. And she has this baby. The baby dies and David mourns. But before we get to Psalm 51, there's a man. The prophet Nathan comes to David and he gives him this elaborate story about a cruel, cruel, rich man who took a poor man's only lamb. And David is enraged when he hears that story. He says that man should pay. And Nathan tells David, you know what, David, you are that man. And parenthetically, I think we all need to have some some Nathans in our worlds. If you don't have a Nathan in your world, a person who can tell you the truth like it is, you are in trouble. Every single one of us need to have at least one or two Nathans in our lives that can intercede for us, but can come with love and tell us like it is. Who can give us who can shoot it to us straight. We all need some some Nathans in our world. God mercifully sends Nathan to tell David the truth and to 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 give it to him like it is. If you want to read Nathan's story, you can look at Second Samuel chapter 11 and 12 and uh, you can hear more about and see more of, of David's story. But here's what we learn about manhood from Psalm 51. And all of that transpires. And then after Nathan comes to David and he he gets in his face and he tells him, you are the dangerous man. You are like the man that took that one little lamb from the poor man. That's you, David. You're cruel and you're wrong. 
And so after all of that transpires, we get Psalm 51. This is David's uh, hearts. It's his heart's cry to the one true and the living God after he's been convicted of his sin. But here's what what we can learn about manhood from Psalm 51. Real men are men that are quick to lead with repentance. Real men are men who are quick to lead with repentance. See, Psalm 51 is what we call a penitential psalm. And what we see is a man who is broken over his sin. Manhood is not being afraid to admit your wrong. See, if you want to experience true manhood, you ought to be the first one to say, I throw my hands up. I'm I'm wrong. And that's one of the things that we learn from David's story is after Nathan comes to him and tells him that he's wrong. We see this story in Psalm 51, this his prayer to God. And he has no uh, bones about admitting that he's wrong and he begins to repent. What we see here is a man who understands his own brokenness. He says in verse one, have mercy on me, O God. He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Get this from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Even in verse three, David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. See, David points the finger at nobody else but himself. That's what real men do. Real men says, you know what? Uh, when, when I find myself in sin, I'm not shifting the blame. But a real man takes the responsibility for his own actions and his own sin. That's what a man does. David says, this is nobody else's mistake but my own. And I'm owning up to my sin. See, oftentimes our, our natural inclination is to shift the blame. It's their fault. It's her fault. It's his fault. But David says it's nobody else's fault but mine. God, I'm caught ran handed and I am sorry. Uh, Would you have mercy on me? Oh, God. David is quick to repent. See, men who understand manhood, they are men of repentance and repentance is get this. It's moving in the opposite direction of rebellion to a holy and a righteous God. See, when David slept with uh, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and when he murdered Uriah in cold blood, you know what he was doing? He was literally rebelling against God. And what we find him doing in Psalm 51 is he's moving away from his rebellion. He's creating space between his rebellion and he's moving back towards a holy and a righteous God. David says it's nobody else's fault but my own. And I understand that, God, it's my transgressions. It's my sin. My sin, oh, God, is ever before me. I'm not shifting the blame. It's nobody else's fault but my own. Remember that uh, newest Denzel movie, Flight? Maybe you hadn't seen it, but uh, Denzel has a movie out. It's called Flight. And uh, he's a pilot. Um, But he happens to be an alcoholic, right? So he's a pilot and he's... An alcoholic. That's a dangerous mix. So here he is in the movie. Uh, Denzel is depicted as this this raunchy old, um, just mean guy uh, to his family 
and everything. And so he's got this problem with alcohol. Alcohol has uh, broken up his marriage, has caused a rift between he and his son. Uh, and now he gets on a plane drunk to fly. And as he's flying a plane, he's drinking vodka and uh, and uh, orange juice mixed together while he's flying the plane. So uh, Denzel is flying this plane and all of a sudden some of the machinery malfunctions on this plane. And the plane is beginning to plummet in a nosedive. Denzel does all that he can to save the people on the flight. But the plane hits the ground uh, and several people die in this in this plane crash. Well, of course, he has to go before the authorities once they find out uh, that he had alcohol in his system. And uh, it wasn't a legal matter, but he had to go before the authorities and they questioned him about his actions. And Denzel is all the while struggling with alcohol, struggling with alcohol. And he's at the table where he's got a choice between lying and telling the truth. He's got a choice between lying and telling the truth. And in this moment, the person asks him, the moderator asks him, were you drunk? The day you flew that plane. And he said to her, oh, God. And then he began to confess about how he was not only drunk when he flew the plane, but he was also drunk that very moment. He was drunk because he was an alcoholic. See, Denzel realized that lying was no longer an option for him. He wanted to experience freedom. And so in that moment. That was his act of repentance. That was his act of saying, you know what? I'm no longer going to shift the blame on anybody else. My marriage is gone. My my relationship with my son is in shambles and I need to admit how wrong I am. That's what we see in David's story. He says, you know what? I'm repenting of my brokenness. I murdered a man in cold blood. I slept with a woman who was not my own. And I can no longer take this any further. I'm I'm guilty of my own sin. I'm not shifting the blame. It was me and nobody else. And he's saying, God, would you have mercy on me? Would you free me? Oh, God. See, the role of a man, no matter the stage of life, his role is to lead with repentance in marriage, in his marriage. He ought to lead with repentance. Uh, There's a conflict between maybe you and your wife. You ought to lead your wife and not wait to her, not wait for her to come to you. You ought to be leading with repentance. Maybe you're in a dating relationship and things are going south. You ought to be the one leading with repentance. Uh, Maybe you've got some distance between you and a parent and you've been disrespectful. You ought to be the one leading with repentance. Manhood says I admit when I'm wrong and I begin to walk in repentance. I turn away from rebelling against God. That's what real manhood is. Just a side note, one of the things you'll notice about the psalm is that it's very, very emotional. And I imagine David weeping under the the weight of his own sin as he's penning this prayer, this, this psalm to God. I imagine him weeping and I imagine him being in such a deep, broken state. And I can think of my own life. I can think of 
when I was in college and I remember sitting in the back of the church and uh, I remember tears were flowing down my face as uh, the Lord was working on my heart, doing work in my life. And I would wipe the tears away because I didn't want anybody to see. I was afraid. I wasn't bold. I, I, I was afraid that somebody would see and that somebody would talk badly about me because I was crying in church. But I think what we see here is an emotional, broken man who has not lost his tears. And so many of us men have done just that. We've lost our tears. We don't know what it is to be broken over sin. We don't know what it is to be broken over our wrongdoing. We've we've lost them. And I think David shows us emotion is okay. You are not driven by emotion, but this man is broken. And I think one of the things we learn is that man, men cry. (laughs) Men have tears, too. I had a professor in seminary who um, he's a great man. He uh, I learned a lot from him for two years. I sat under him as he taught myself and my classmates uh, the best he knew how uh, the original language Greek. And um, we we uh, after we finished the class, after two years, we all thought we should get shirts because we uh, that said we, we passed Dr. Shackelford because uh, he was so hard. Um, But Dr. Shackelford was extremely passionate about the Greek language. And I remember there were times over the course of two years, there were a number of times where we would be in class, an academic setting, and Dr. Shackelford would be teaching us about the Greek language and tears would well up in his eyes. And as he's teaching us, he's teaching us the, the deep truths of Scripture He's weeping because of the goodness and the grace of Jesus. See, Dr. Shackelford, what he understood was how broken he was. He could emit his own brokenness and an expression of his brokenness. He saw the goodness of Jesus and how Jesus pursued him. He had tears. He was emotional. He was broken over his own sin. But he was so grateful for the goodness of Jesus. He hadn't lost his tears. That's manhood. That's manhood. Secondly, real manhood is honoring God and understanding his character. Real manhood. You want to know what real manhood is? It's when you honor God and when you understand his character. David just doesn't stop at accepting the responsibility. He taps into his knowledge of the character of God. One of the first things out of David's mouth is, God, have mercy on me. And what David is saying is, God, would you give me that which I do not deserve? Mercy. He taps into the divine mercy of God because he knows God's character and he understands how how wrong his sin is. See, David understands because of the Mosaic law, what he's due for the murder of Uriah the Hittite and what he's due for sleeping with a, a woman that was not his wife. What he's due for that is death. David understands that he should die. And he cries out to God in his own brokenness. 
And he says, God, would you give me that which I do not deserve? God, have mercy on me. David leans into the divine mercy of God because he knows without the mercy of God, he's got no shot. He knows without the mercy of God, he's condemned forever. He taps into the divine mercy of God. David also understands that he's got to tap into God's great love for him. One of the things David says in verse 1, blot out my transgressions, he continues in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He understands that God is the only one who can cleanse and wash him the way he needs to be cleansed and washed. He understands that if he cannot go to God to be cleansed and washed, there's nobody else that can help him. He goes to him. I love the line that says, blot out my transgressions, because in antiquity, the important there were important documents that that were written on papyrus and papyrus was an expensive uh, their their paper of of the day. Uh, And so they would write these important documents, maybe portions of scriptures or prayers on papyrus. When those portions of scripture or prayers, when those documents were no longer needed, what they would do is they would uh, wipe them out or they would blot out those portions of scripture. And then they would turn them to the side and they would write a different portion that they needed. And so when David says, God, blot out my transgressions, he's saying, uh, take the papyrus of my own life. And wipe out the story that I've created that's no longer needed, oh God, and write me a new story. He's saying, blot out my transgressions. And he knows that God is the only one who can do that. David says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David gives us a great word picture here. He says, purge me with hyssop. To purge him with hyssop. What he's saying here, the hyssop plant is the same plant that was used during the Passover. Uh, so the Passover uh, was a time, it was judgment upon God and the Egyptians. It was a judgment upon God's people and the Egyptians. And uh, God would send judgment upon them that every uh, child, every male child, the youngest male child would have to die. Um, And so God said to his people, he said, if you do not want to experience this judgment, what you will do is you will slaughter a a lamb and you will put the blood of that lamb over your doorpost. And these hyssop plants grew during that time and they grew in the shape of brushes. And so they would take the people of God would take the hyssop plant and they would dip it in the blood of a lamb and they would sprinkle that blood over their doorposts. David would understand this. So when David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, what he's saying is uh, apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of my life. He's saying, God, without the blood of the lamb, I am nothing. And David's saying, I need the blood of Jesus applied to my life. That's what a real man does. A real man understands his need for the blood of Jesus to be applied to his life. That's what a real man does. Verse 10 says, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. That word create is the same word in Genesis 
used when God created the heavens and the earth and all the things that he created. Uh, it's Barah, B-A-R-A. And that word is ex nihilo. It means out of nothing. So God created out of nothing all these things, the heavens and the earth and even you and I. So David uses that same word. He says, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. And what David means is he's saying, God, give me a brand new heart. God, don't use the same heart that I have in me now, but God, give me a brand new heart, one that only you can give me created out of nothing. See, David understands his deep need for God. That's what a real man does. A real man runs to Jesus, runs to God to have a new heart. Um, I have four nieces. My brother has, I have many nieces, but my brother has four daughters. And I love my, my four nieces. They're, they're all beautiful girls. Um, but it's unique that, of course, uh, they have a relationship with me that's different than they have with their dad. Um, and I don't live in the same city as them. Uh, but every time I go home, it takes a little warming up to to Uncle Chris. And I got and I got to woo him. I got to woo him. And so before they let me pick them up and before they let me hug on them and kiss on them, I just got to spend some time wooing them a little bit so they can remember who Uncle Chris is. But daddy, daddy doesn't have to woo them. They know daddy. Daddy, they know that daddy cares for him and that daddy loves him, them, and, and, and they love daddy back. So there are times when I'm chasing them around the house, I'm working on wooing them, and they stand in between daddy's legs and they hold on to his leg and they make faces at me. Why? Because they feel protected in daddy's security. So I'm trying to grab on to them and, and they're running in through the house screaming and where do they run? Right to daddy's lap because they're safe with him. They're, they're, they're secure with daddy. And they feel the freedom to even uh, antagonize and, and yell at Uncle Chris and make fun of Uncle Chris because they're with daddy. They're secure with daddy. And that's exactly what, what, what we see here. We see a man who understands his need for daddy understands his need to be secure and his need to be safe. And that's why he runs to the mercy of God. That's why he runs to the love of God. That's why he runs to those things, because he knows without God, without daddy, he's got nothing. He's not safe. He's he's not secure. So what we see is a man who taps into the divine character of God. I love what in verse one it says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, your steadfast love. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unending, your everlasting love, your unmatched love, your unmatched compassion for us. He taps into the divine love of God because David understands that there's no love like God's love. And even after he's been uh, confronted by Nathan, he doesn't say, have mercy on me, Nathan. He doesn't say, Nathan, have mercy on me uh, according to your steadfast love for me, Nathan. No. He says, have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast, your unending, your everlasting love for me. God, would you give me that which I do not deserve? He asks for those things from from God because he knows there's nothing he can do without him. Where do you go for safety? Where do you find security as a man? Do you find it in pornography? Do you find safety there? Do, do, you, do you find it in people? Do you find it in the things that you, that you accumulate? See, society tells us that manhood is more car, that manhood uh, is more house, that being a man is the best snapback you can put on, uh, the, the best shoes that you can get. The, society says that's what manhood is. But the picture that we get from David's life is very different from that. The picture that we get from David's life is, he says, manhood is brokenness. Manhood is repentance. Manhood is running to a God who loves you and and desires you more than you can love yourself. Society says manhood is drinking yourself crazy. Manhood is sleeping with as many women as you can sleep with. Society says that's what manhood is. David says, not so. David says, in fact, I've had all those things. And Psalm 51 is a picture of where those things have led me. Brokenness. Brokenness. So David shows us that manhood is brokenness. That manhood is running to the mercy of God to give you that which you cannot Give yourself. He says manhood is running to the divine plan of God through Jesus. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Purge me with hyssop. Apply the blood of the Lamb to my life, O God. Would you do that which I cannot do for myself? Do it for me. Have mercy. That's what David says manhood is. And lastly, real men take what God has done in them and for them and are a blessing to others. Real men take what God has done for them and in them and they are a blessing to others. Look at verse 13. David says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Verses 14 through 15 says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and get this, my mouth will declare your praise. And I love this because here is a broken man who says, have mercy on me. My transgressions are ever before me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. He says all these things and he says, God, once I'm clean, once I have a new slate, once I have a new story, I will sing your praises. God, I'll declare your praises and sinners will come to know you deeply, O God. God, I'll use my testimony to be a blessing to others. And see, that's so important for us to understand. And I believe what David is pointing to is discipleship. David is pointing to the need for men to take the story that God has created in their life and to pull along other young men 
that are having stories created in their lives as well. David says your story does not stop with you, but you ought to feel the obligation. uh, You ought to feel the privilege even to pull somebody else along in the faith. David says, God, once you do this in me, once you purge me with hyssop, once you cleanse me, God, once you wash me whiter than snow, I will sing your praises and I will declare your name to the ends of the earth to all time. He says, I'll be a mouthpiece for you, O God. He, he, he says, he will tell other men. He, he'll, he'll disciple other men. So I believe David is saying here, what about you this morning? God has given each one of us a story. He, he has marked our very lives. And who are we pouring the wisdom that God's poured into us Who are we investing in? Who are we pulling along in the faith? Or has the bar stopped with us? Has the story stopped with us? See, manhood is taking what God has done through you and in you and investing it into somebody younger than you. Somebody uh, less spiritually astute as you. Manhood is pulling somebody else along in the faith. I love this because we can point to many things. We can point to Genesis 1:27 and how we were created in the image of God and we can talk about how we have uh, the image of God and we bear his image and we have purpose because of that image. We can talk about how we're supposed to be warriors and conquerors. We can talk about all of these things that that we point to manhood, that we use to point to manhood. But will we talk about brokenness over sin? Will we talk about brokenness even in our marriages and vulnerability? Will we talk about admitting when we're wrong? And I think that's the life that David points to. That's the kind of manhood that David shows us in Psalm 51. He shows us a broken, tearful mess. He's not showing us a strong man who is a conqueror of all things, who wins every competition. He's showing us a man who has lost. He's showing us a picture of a failure. And I think David is saying this is manhood. Manhood is when you fail, you know how to get back up through the grace and the mercy of God and not yourself. That's manhood. See, society will tell us that only the strong survive. And I don't see David being strong in Psalm 51. I see him being extremely weak. I see him being extremely vulnerable. He's weak. And so often, here we are as men, even boys, our desire is to win Our desire is to be better than anybody else. And we we attempt to lead and boast on our strengths. And what David is saying is the only way I can win is through my weakness. The only the only way that I can win is through my brokenness. And he says, my brokenness won't stop with me. David says, my story will not stop with me, but I'm going to use my story and I'm going to be a blessing to others. He says, my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. 
my, my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Transgressors, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn to you. David says, my story will not stop with me, but I'm going to use my story that people may know you and glorify you in heaven. Oh God. I love it because um, I've had many men pour into my life, uh, but the ones who have poured into my life that I've gotten the most from have been the ones who've been vulnerable about their weaknesses. The ones who have told me about times when they're they're at odds with their wife or times where they they had to discipline their children and things didn't work out the way they assumed they were going to work out. Times when uh, they made a decision for their home and it failed uh, terribly. Those were the times where I learned the most from the men who poured down deep into my heart and into my life, who helped to raise me up as a man. Those times when they when they boasted in their weaknesses, but then it wouldn't stop there. They would always say, but Chris, God has been faithful. God has been good. God has taken care of my marriage. God has taken care of my children. God has taken care of of my work. Why? Because they boasted not in their strengths, but in their weaknesses. That's manhood. You want to be a real man? You admit when you're wrong. You want you want to be a, a real man? You turn away from rebelling against God and you walk in repentance and you bend your head and your knee to God because he is the only one who can give you mercy. That's what a real man does. A real man looks to Jesus for hope, for significance, for sufficiency. A real man looks to Jesus for ultimate joy. That's what a real man does. And that's what we see David doing here in his psalm. David says, I'm not going to waste my life, but I'm going to pass it on to somebody else because God has been good and he's faithful. Let's pray. God, thank you that you care for us enough to send your only son. Thank you, Lord, that you've been so good to us, Father, that you have not given us what we deserve. Thank you, Lord for your divine mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your loving compassion to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have the power to change us and to redeem us, to save us, O oh God. You alone have that authority and that power. Thank you, Father, that our manhood is not dictated by how much money we have, the clothes that we wear, the cars that we drive, the girls that we talk to. Our manhood is not determined by that, but our manhood is more determined by how much of repentance we're walking in. So, Father, would that be true of us? Father, every man and boy here, would it be true of us that we are walking in repentance back to a to a loving God? Would you help us, Lord, to walk in repentance, to embrace your love and compassion and your grace for us? as we strive to be real men. In Jesus' name.
Amen.